Around the year 50 A.D., Paul planted a church. The apostle Paul planted a church in Corinth, which was in modern-day Greece. And we say planted because instead of started the church or maybe founded the church, planted rings more true because of how Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He came to town preaching the gospel. That's all Paul came to the town of Corinth doing. He says in chapter 1, verse 17, he didn't come to do these other things, including baptize people. He came to Corinth to preach the gospel. And when Paul came and preached the gospel, or when anyone comes to a town and preaches a gospel, it is like digging a hole and planting a seed. That's what it is. The preaching of the gospel is like digging a hole and planting a seed, which is what even today we would say a church planter does. In one sense, a church planter is someone who goes to a town and he digs a hole and he plants a seed. Ten years ago, a little over ten years ago, this church started when I dug a hole in my living room. Dug a hole in my living room and we planted the seed of the gospel. And at that point, it is out of a church planter's hands. It is out of his control whether or not a church is going to grow, whether or not a church will be built. So the next thing that happened in Corinth, after Paul came and preached the gospel, after he came and dug his hole and planted the seed, the next thing to happen was that God made that seed grow. That's exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 6 and 7. I came, I planted a seed, Apollos watered the seed, but listen, I didn't make it grow, Paul says. These other teachers didn't make it grow. These other pastors didn't make it grow. God made it grow. God alone is the only one who gives the growth. So Paul brought the preaching and God brought the power. That's always how it works. God brought the power. Paul brought the preaching. Paul planted the church, and God made it grow. God builds His church. He made this church in Corinth grow by empowering people to see and believe. Paul couldn't make them really see the gospel. Paul couldn't make them believe the gospel. Just like none of you can make anyone believe anything. You can present something, but it's up to them whether or not they'll believe. All Paul could do was preach the gospel and then pray for people that God would give them the ability to see and to believe. And that is exactly what God did in Corinth. So it's true. Technically speaking, God built the church. God founded the church. God started the church. Paul planted the church. And so he did that. We can read about it in the book of Acts chapter 18. Paul came to Corinth. He planted the church. He was there for about a year and a half, and then he moved on. He moved on to plant other churches in other towns and regions. And then three and a half years later, so about five years from the founding of the church, Paul writes this letter that we've been studying. About three and a half years after he left, and about five years after the founding of the church. And he writes this letter, just to remind you, he writes this letter for several reasons. Number one, he has theology to teach. Paul always has theology to teach. He was an apostle. He was an inspired author. God was speaking directly to him in ways that God does not speak directly to anyone anymore. He was an apostle. God inspired him to write truth about who we are, about who God is, about what the gospel is. And so Paul wrote them down. So he had theology to teach, number one. Number two, he had questions to answer, questions that the Corinthians had written him. 
and he'll get to that. And then third, he had problems to confront. One of the reasons he wrote this letter is because there were problems to confront. He'd received reports from people in the church so that he had an understanding of what those issues were and he writes to confront them. Way back in chapter 1, verse 10, he started confronting one of these problems, the biggest problem, and it was pride within the church. It was pride that was leading the Corinthians to divide up into sinful factions under various leaders. And that problem, evidently, was so serious that Paul has taken roughly four chapters to address it. He's going to see, you'll see, he's going to address other problems, but he's not going to give it the, the time that he gives this one. Four chapters addressing this problem. And now today, finally, we will come to the conclusion of this first confrontation. And in this fourth chapter, Paul has been instructing the Corinthians on how they should view and respond to their leaders. He's made it clear. You shouldn't be dividing up over them. You shouldn't be vowing this allegiance to certain leaders at the expense of other leaders. You shouldn't be boasting in these leaders. This pride is bad. The way you're handling your leaders, the way you're viewing them and responding to them is wrong. So in this chapter, as he winds it up, he says, this is how you should view these leaders. This is how you should respond to these leaders. And now he has one more thing to say as he closes out this confrontation. And we'll see, he presents himself as a spiritual father. As a spiritual father to the Corinthians. And we'll see all that that means. As we move forward, remember that we are reading God's word. And we are looking to understand God's word. And in God's word alone, we learn the bad news of who we are and the good news of who God is and what he has done to rescue us from ourselves. And so historically, whenever God's word is preached and it is strengthened, helped, inspired by the Holy Spirit, Whenever that happens, people are changed forever. Which means that as we, as we sit on the doorstep of being under, including myself, the preaching of God's word, it is possible if God would move in this way that you and I will be changed in the next hour or so forever. Forever. So before I say anything else, we should pray together. Will you please bow your heads with me? Father in heaven, as we listen to this sermon, would you sharpen our minds and would you soften our hearts and would you embolden our wills? Would you change us to become more pleasing to you, to bring you more glory and honor and to give us more joy, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. If you are using one of our church Bibles, which you're free to take with you, if you don't own a Bible, you'll find today's text on page 619. In our first verse, verse 14, if you'll look with me, Paul will refer to what he has just said in the previous Verses, which is what we studied last week. You'll remember that Paul had some hard words. Some hard words for the Corinthians. He was sarcastic with them even. He, he ridiculed them with his words. He exposed their pride by throwing their own silly, self-inflating beliefs right back in their face. 
So he came at them hard in those verses. He said this in verse 7, and I'm paraphrasing. For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? If you received it, why do you boast or brag as if you didn't receive it? Those are hard words. But that's how they were talking. That's how they were believing. In verse 8, already you have it all. Already you know it all. Already, apart from me, you have arrived. Sarcastic. And then more sarcasm in verse 10. Paul says, we are fools, but you are wise. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. Well, these are, those were hard words. And those words were written to, and they would have been read in front of the entire church. You can imagine how uncomfortable that would have been. And how awkward that would have been. You can, you can picture people sliding down in their chairs. You can picture people getting up to use the bathroom. You can picture wives elbowing their husbands. You can picture people turning their heads and crossing their arms and looking at people across the sanctuary shaking their head. That would have been very uncomfortable to be in that room. Especially when it gets to these things that Paul has just said. When he's mocking them, when he's ridiculing them, when he's, when he's essentially saying, your pride is so bad that I'm going to mock you now. I'm going to try to snap you out of your complacency. I'm going to try to shock you out of your pride. So we can deduce from today's text that Paul anticipated at least two responses to those hard words. And so he follows up those hard words with what he's going to say today. Some would be ashamed. When Paul talked that way, some would be ashamed and some would be arrogant. And you could basically break down today's text as in verses 14 through 17, Paul is addressing those who feel ashamed at his hard words. And then in verses 18 through 20, he is addressing those who are arrogant at his hard words. And then he has a final question in verse 21 that's addressed to both. So let's begin. Let's begin with Paul's words to the ashamed. The ashamed. Verse 14. I do not write these things. That is the sarcasm and the ridicule. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Some people evidently heard or would hear Paul's words and they felt ashamed, which is the feeling of guilt before others. Guilt and shame are closely related. Guilt is that that sorrow that we feel over something wrong that we've done. And shame is basically when that guilt is seen by others. When that is in front of others. When our sin, what we've done wrong, what we feel guilty of is known by others. And of course that's happening because Paul is addressing it publicly in this letter. Shame is a painful emotion. Maybe one of the most painful emotions. Guilt and shame are both painful emotions, and they are both very useful emotions. Listen, guilt is not bad. Guilt is not to be avoided. Shame is not bad. Shame is not to be avoided. These are very useful emotions from God intended to drive us to change. Intended to drive us to repentance. The guilt, the shame moves us and motivates us, at least it should, to change. To repentance. 
Shame is never the destination. Which is why Paul says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed. Richard Pratt, in his commentary, wrote, Paul's goal was not to shame them, but to warn or admonish them. That is, though he intended to shame them to some degree, their shame was not his ultimate goal. He employed shame as a tool for admonishing them, for inspiring them to reject their pride and repair their divisions. So, of course, they would be ashamed at what Paul was saying. He does not want them to stay in their shame. But it is those who feel ashamed that he's addressing in the first part of this text. Now, up until this point in Paul's letter, he has used several different metaphors and titles to describe his role in ministry. If you've been reading along or you've read these chapters before, you may even think of some of them. He was a fellow worker. He called himself in chapter 3, verse 9. He was like a master builder. He said in chapter 3, verse 10. As a minister, a pastor, apostle, he was like a farmer, right, who plants the seed in chapter 3, verse 6. At the beginning of this chapter, chapter 4, he said that he was a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was a steward of the mysteries of God. And now, as he draws his rebuke of pride to a close, he has one more title. And this is the, this is the last title that he wants to leave them with as he wraps up this confrontation of their pride. So listen for it. See if you can hear this last title. I'll read verses 14 and 15 together. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers, for I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Did you hear it? Father. Father. Paul is obviously not a biological father to the Corinthians. He is a spiritual father. That's what he's saying. Paul gets this title in their mind now. Paul is a spiritual father to the Corinthians. He writes, I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So here's what Paul is saying. The Corinthians are Christians because of Paul. Not only because of Paul, but the Corinthians are Christians because of Paul. The Corinthians came to Christ through Paul. Remember what he did. They came to Christ through Paul. They were born again under Paul's ministry. Paul means, I became your father and you became my children in Christ Jesus through my preaching to you of the gospel. That is how they became Christians. This is how all Christians are born. This is not unique to the Corinthians. This is how all Christians are born. This is how people become children of God. Preaching without and power within. That's how you become a Christian. Preaching without and power within. The gospel, it works like this. The gospel comes in the ears or through the eyes and into the mind. Maybe somebody's preaching the gospel. Maybe you're reading God's word and you're reading the gospel. Maybe it's in a book, whatever it is. But the gospel comes in your ears or through your eyes and into your mind. And then the Holy Spirit makes it, if he decides to, the Holy Spirit makes it understandable and irresistible. And you then see and believe. That's how Christians are made. So you need both. You need preaching without 
and you need power within, which is why Christians preach and pray. We preach the gospel and then we pray that God would move, that the Holy Spirit would move because we know that power is needed within. So the tinder is set and the spirit in flames. This is how it works. The kindling is the gospel and the match is the spirit of God. So you need the talk and you need the power, which is a theme he'll refer to when he addresses the arrogant in just a few verses. Let me give you some scriptures. Isn't this what he said earlier in this book in chapter 3, verses 6 and 7? I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. He's saying, I brought the gospel, it went in your ears, and it went into your mind. But it wasn't going to go anywhere unless God came and gave it growth. Unless God helped you, enabled you to understand, to see, to believe. So neither he who plants, nor he who waters, is anything. But only God who gives the growth. Or 1 John 5, 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, so in John's mind you have people like you, like me, who believe that Jesus is the Christ. Some of you don't believe that here today, but many of you do. You believe that Jesus is the Christ. Why do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? What has happened to you? Well, here's how John says it. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, that's right now, has been, that's past tense, born of God. Has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. John 3, 3. Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is coming to Jesus and saying, how do I get saved, basically? And Jesus gives him a very frustrating answer. He doesn't tell him to take a knee, doesn't tell him to raise a hand, doesn't tell him to repeat this after me. None of that. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So he tells Nicodemus, you, you can't understand it. You can't see it. I'm going to tell it to you. You're going to hear me preaching it, but you're not going to be able to see it. It's not going to make any sense. It's just going to be foolishness to you because first, you need to be born of God. Born of God. That's describing the same thing. Power within first to understand and believe the preaching without. Ezekiel 11. We can go Old Testament. Ezekiel 11, 19 through 20. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them and I will remove their heart of stone. Here's what happened to you, Christian. I will remove their heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. Why? What will happen? That they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. They shall then be my people and I will be their God. After the heart of stone is removed and you're given a heart of flesh. Or Deuteronomy chapter 29 verses 2 through 4. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, he's confronting them because they're rebellious. They don't get it. They don't see. They don't understand. They're being chronically disobedient. And he's going to tell them why. You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes. It came into their eyes. They saw it. You've seen all the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land. The great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. Why didn't they see? Why didn't they hear? Why didn't they understand? Because God had not yet given them an understanding heart, a believing mind. So this happened for the Corinthians. So Paul's saying when he calls himself their father, Paul brought the gospel to their eyes and ears. He says elsewhere, like in Romans 10, how will people believe 
If they don't hear, how will they hear if someone doesn't come preach? How will someone preach unless a preacher is sent? Paul was that preacher. So he brought the gospel to Corinth. And the Holy Spirit enabled them to see and believe. And they became Christians. And they joined Paul in Christ. And so Paul says, I became your father in Christ through the gospel. So again, as Paul brings this confrontation to a close, he wants the Corinthians to think of him and hear him as a father. He's described himself many ways. But as he brings this confrontation to a close, he's saying, listen, I am your spiritual father. Now, why this title? What is what is Paul's point? As we read on, we're going to find four qualities of a spiritual father. There are four qualities of a spiritual father that are evident just in this text. There's more, but there's four here. Why does, why does Paul want the Corinthians to think of him as a father right now? What is he trying to emphasize? Think about it. It could be the authority of a father. Maybe that's what he wants to bring to mind. I'm your father, which means I have authority over you. That's made very clear in Scripture. I'm your father, Corinthians. Therefore, I have authority over you. Therefore, listen to what I am saying to you. That could be the point Paul is making, but I don't think it is. If it were, wouldn't Paul say something more like this? I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as children who are under my authority. That's not what Paul says. Paul says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. So I see four qualities here. And the first one is right in this verse 14, and it is a father's affection. Paul's tone is changing here. This is tender the way he is speaking. This is a father's affection. Paul is not bringing authority to mind. He is bringing affection to mind. They were his beloved children. Paul is saying, I love you deeply. I love you deeply as a father loves his children. So listen to me. He's not appealing to his authority over them. He is appealing to his affection for them. I love you deeply, he is saying. Listen to my words. He says, you have countless guides in Christ, but only one father. Now, this word for guide, this is something most of us don't have anymore. The word is pedagogue. This is someone who would have been employed by a family to care for the practical needs of a child. And so the pedagogue would make sure that they were getting to school on time, that they were getting picked up from school, that they were doing their homework. They would teach them. They would hold them accountable. Some of you right now are thinking, I need me a pedagogue. <laughs> That's what it was. But they wouldn't have, this is the big difference, they had responsibility over the child, but they did not have the affection for the child like a parent would. And parents, you know what that affection is like. You didn't do anything to, to nurture it. You didn't do anything to foster it. Right? The, the first time you met your child, it was just it was magical, wasn't it? It was just, it was there. Nothing you did, nothing you prepared, it was just there. And you still, to this day, for your children have this deep affection. And you may love a lot of people, but you don't love anyone the way you love your family. And you love your children. You may love other children. 
but you don't love any children the way you love your children. There is a deep affection that you have for them. They are your beloved. One theologian says, he, it's Paul, intimates that he is actuated by a different kind of affection from that of those whom they so highly esteemed. So the Corinthians had lots of other teachers, lots of other guides, lots of other men who had responsibility over them and taught them, but there was no one like Paul, he is saying. They take pains in instructing you. Be it so, very different is the love of a father. Very different his anxiety. Very different his attachment from those of a pedagogue. So a father has a unique anxiety for his children. Yeah, I, I care, I do. I care about how all of your children turn out. But I don't care how your children turn out as much as I care how my children turn out. And I don't think you're offended by that. And you probably feel the same way about your kids against my kids. I have a different anxiety for my children. I have a different attachment to my children. I have a greater degree of affection. And so with this title, Father, Paul brings to mind a father's affection. No one, Paul is saying, loves you the way I love you. So listen to me. That's the first quality. The next is a father's admonition. Look again at verse 14. Here is a father's admonition. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to what? Admonish you. So here is a father's admonition. When all is said and done, Paul does not want them ashamed. He wants them admonished. This word for admonish means to criticize in love with a view toward change. You like that? To criticize in love is a good thing. To criticize in love with a view toward change. Paul loves them, which is why he writes, I write these things to admonish you as my beloved children. In other words, you get admonishment that others don't. It's a privilege. You get this admonishment because you are my beloved, because I think of you as my children, and so you will have my admonishment. A father who loves his children will admonish them. Now listen, the main point of this text this is not a text for dads. That's not the main point. But there is a lot here to be learned by fathers. Because Paul is assuming these qualities of an earthly father and saying that a spiritual father is like this. And so it is a check for us earthly fathers to see whether or not we're even this. We forget whether or not we're these kind of spiritual fathers. Are we these kinds of earthly fathers? A father will have affection for his children. And a father who loves his children will admonish them. He will have hard words for his children at times. If he loves them. I tried to find good examples of this in the Bible. There seems to be more bad examples. It's one of the things I do love about the Bible, how honest it is. I mean, the heroes that are presented in the Bible are, are not heroes you would find anywhere else. Very messed up individuals. So one of, one of these bad fathers was, was Eli. He might be the worst. You can read about Eli in 1 Samuel chapter 3. He was a pastor, by the way, so he had pastor's kids. He was a high priest, and he had two sons. And the Bible, how harsh is this? The Bible has a phrase for describing his boys, and it is worthless sons. That's tragic. It says, Eli had a couple boys. They were worthless sons. They were assigned to help their father at the tabernacle. They didn't. They didn't follow the 
strict rules that God had set out, and in fact, they even slept with women at the entrance of the tabernacle. The Bible says they were worthless sons. And then God says this in 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 13. I declare to him, God says this about Eli, their dad. I declare to Eli that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Eli gets held more accountable than the boys do. Why? Because he did not restrain them. That Hebrew word translated into the Greek is admonish. What was the problem with Eli? He did not admonish his boys. He did not correct his boys. He didn't have hard words for his boys. He didn't admonish them. He did not discipline them. This is why Proverbs 13, 24 says these shocking words. Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. I mean, let me explain what that means. It says that if a father does not admonish his children, if a father does not have hard words at times for his children, he hates them. He hates them. He has no affection for them. He doesn't really care about them. They're his possession and therefore his happiness and his joy. So he keeps them happy so that he's happy. But he doesn't really love them. He doesn't have deep affection. He doesn't care about He lets them do. He doesn't restrain them. He lets them do what they want to do. He hates them. And then the contrast is the one who loves his children. And the one who loves his children, what does he not spare? The rod. Which refers to discipline. Which refers to correction. Which refers to admonishment. So Paul does not admonish the Corinthians in spite of his affection for them. He admonishes them because of his affection for them. It's not like I have affection for you, I love you, but I'm going to admonish you. No, that's not what a parent does. I have great affection for you, therefore I'm going to admonish you. I'm going to have hard words for you. I'm going to have consequences for you. I'm going to correct you. I'm going to restrain you. And you remember being a kid, and some of you are kids. It didn't feel like love at the time. It didn't feel like love at the time. When you were corrected as a child or as a teenager, when you were told you couldn't do this or you couldn't have this anymore or you weren't to hang out with this person or whatever it was, you may have even thought things like, my parents don't love me. They don't care about me. But some of you who had godly parents who were seeking to admonish you look back now very differently, don't you? And you're thankful for hard words. My dad's hard words are some of the, mo the words I'm most grateful for. I, I could even say, honestly, as a 42-year-old man looking back, I wish my father had more hard words for me. I would have been more helped. I'm thankful for him. But if anything, more admonishment. I needed more admonishment. So there is a father's affection and a father's admonition and next we have a father's example. Look at verse 16. Paul says, and this is based on him in relationship to them as a spiritual father who has great affection for them and is admonishing them. So based on that, he says, I urge you then, because of what I've just said, be imitators of me. This is a father's example. Paul has already made clear that he has been put forth by God as an example, hasn't he? In verse 7, he said that God was exhibiting him. 
He said that God has made me and other suffering apostles like me a spectacle for you to see and learn by. And now here, he just explicitly calls the Corinthians to be imitators of me. This is a father's example. Paul does this in other places. When he writes to the Philippians in chapter 3, verse 17, he says, Brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So he said, find those who are good examples and keep your eyes on them, Paul is saying. Including me, Paul says. Imitate me. Later in this book, in chapter 11, verse 1, Paul will famously say, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. This is what an earthly father should do. This is what a spiritual father should do. Those whom you love and those whom you care for. So those whom you admonish, you should be able to point to yourself and to your life and say, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. That doesn't mean and never means do everything that I do. But I need to be, Paul needed to be, You need to be as a father, or you need to be, if you're a pastor or a teacher or a leader, an example that people can follow. It's not just about what you say. It's about how you live. In fact, what you say means nothing if it's not supported by how you live. So Paul says, I'm following Christ in chapter 11, verse 1. Follow me as I follow Christ. Hebrews 13, 7 calls all of us to remember your leaders. Those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider, that means think about the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Paul was a spiritual father saying, follow my example. We need spiritual fathers whom examples we are following. Leon Morris writes, While in the different circumstances of today, preachers may well hesitate to call on others to imitate them, it still remains that if we are to commend our gospel, it must be because our lives reveal its power. Talk and power. Not just saying the gospel, not just saying truth, not just admonishing people in the church or admonishing your children at home, but backing it up with an example that demonstrates the power of whatever it is that you preach. So we know this. A father is to be an example to his children. A father should never say, do as I say, not as I do. Some of you have heard that. That's pretty silly. Well, you did it. Well, don't do as I do. Do as I say. Well, listen, and most of you have learned this. That doesn't work. That doesn't work. Fathers, your children are far more likely to grow up And live the way you live, not the way you tell them to live. It doesn't work like that. That's not how God has wired the universe. And so fathers must be an example. This is also, incidentally, why young women, considering a man for marriage, should pay very little attention to what he says. But how does he live As men, we can talk really well, especially if there's something we want. That was a funny thing to get amens to. (laughs) Some of you were like, preach. That's not the point of the sermon, but (laughs) it is true. It's not as much about what we say. and In fact, what we say does not matter if our lives What Leon Morris said is true. Reveal its power. And so you know how this works in your family and how this needs to work in the church. We need examples 
of people who are demonstrating with their life the power of the gospel. Now, what do I mean by that? What does, what does that mean? That your life, because people are watching you, especially moms, dads, teachers, pastors, those in authority, people are watching you. And whether you like it or not, or tell them not to follow you, you are modeling life, and you are being an example. So what does it mean to demonstrate, to exemplify the power of the gospel? It means, okay, you say you believe the gospel. So you say that you believe that Jesus came, lived, suffered, died in my place, so that, and I am now, reconciled to God. I have been saved from my sin. I have been freed from my sin. And I am an adopted child of God. And I am going to be secure in Him forever. You say you believe that. Now your life has to demonstrate that power. Are you joyful? Are you joyful? Or are you always grumpy? I would submit that does not demonstrate the power of the gospel in your life. How do you respond to criticism when your kids criticize you? When they see others criticize you? Do you fall apart? Do you get angry? Do you show them in your anger or in your deep sorrow over the criticism of others that what people think about you is more important to you than what God thinks about you? Or do you demonstrate the power of the gospel and you can patiently endure those criticisms because what God thinks of you in Christ is really the only thing that matters and so you welcome criticism because it helps you become more honoring to Christ. If you do, you demonstrate the power of the gospel. How do you pray? Do you just pray for God to do things? Do your kids hear you pray? And do they just hear you pray, God, do this, please do this, please do that? Or do they hear you thanking God and praising God? And because the power of the gospel is at work in you. And so you're filled with gratitude when you go to Him. What about when your kids see you suffer? What about when you suffer? What about when sickness comes? Or tragedy comes? Or you lose positions in life where the finances crumble beneath you? The friendship disappears. How do you suffer? Are you controlled by all those circumstances? Or do you, because you believe the gospel... Exemplify faithfulness. Not perfectly, but you know that in all things God is working for your good. How do they see you deal with sin? Do they see you pursue holiness? Does it look to those who look to you like you want to please God and want to be holy and want to honor Him and take His word serious? Do you show up to worship? Do you worship with your family? Do they see you singing? I mean, there are just so many ways that if you really believe the gospel, so maybe you don't, but if you really believe the gospel, it is going to change you. It's going to transform you. And you're going to see criticism differently. And you're going to see embarrassment differently. And you're going to see your work differently. And you're going to see life differently. And your relationships differently. And suffering differently. You're going to, it changes everything. And it will be exhibited to those who are following you. So you say you believe the gospel. Is the power of that gospel demonstrated in your life? If it is not, then listen. Hear it now. You probably do not believe the gospel. I don't know what you believe, but you probably do not believe the gospel right now. You've been sold something else. You believe something else. You think about life as being for something else. Your greatest treasure is something else. 
So people see you get angry over your reputation, or you get angry over your stature, or you get angry about money, or you get angry over people disrespecting you, or whatever it is, or you're brought low and despairing and depressed. They're finding out what's important to you. They're finding out what you love. It's being exhibited. It is a spectacle before those who follow you. So we need a father's example. We need it in the church. We need it in the home. And Paul says, be imitators of me. Paul says, he makes it so clear, he is not a perfect example. He calls himself, he says, of all the sinners, I consider myself the foremost, the worst, the chief of sinners. And yet he can say, I believe the gospel. And the power of that gospel has been unleashed in my life. And if you watch me suffer, and if you watch me endure persecution, and if you watch me go from town to town, and you watch me relate to those I love, you are going to see the power of the gospel. So he says, imitate me. No, I want to be able to say that the way Paul could. To help the Corinthians to imitate Paul, since Paul was not with them, he says this in verse 17. That is why I sent to you, Timothy. My beloved and faithful child in the Lord to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. So Paul says, I'm sending you Timothy, whom he also considers to be his beloved child in the Lord. And Timothy is sent to remind them of Paul's, what does he say? My ways in Christ. In other words, Timothy will remind them how Paul lived when he was among them and how he's living now. And it is a demonstration of the power of the gospel because you need a father's affection. You need a father's admonishment. You need a father's example. We need spiritual examples of this. We need spiritual fathers, specifically men in the church who have affection for the body, who admonish the body, who set an example for the body. That is Paul's concluding address to those who may feel ashamed by his hard words. He considers them as children. He has great affection for them. And so he admonishes them and offers himself as an example to follow. So next. Paul turns his attention to another crowd. Not everyone felt appropriate shame at Paul's words. Some were arrogant. And so in verses 18 through 21... Paul closes his argument by specifically addressing those he knows will not receive his fatherly admonition. They are the arrogant. We can read in other parts of Paul's letters the kinds of things they said about Paul. And so Paul writes in verse 18. And I, I see the time. We'll move through this section more quickly. So Paul says in verse 18, some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. It's another fatherly word, isn't it? Some are arrogant as if I were not going to come and see you face to face. What do moms sometimes tell their kids who are misbehaving while dad's at work? When your father comes home, we will deal with that. We, don't, we, don't, we actually don't say that in our house, but some of you do. I don't think we do. So it sounds like they doubted that Paul would ever return. I mean, he's gone. He's off planning other churches. He's, he's writing this, this letter. He's sending Timothy instead of himself. So maybe they were emboldened by that. It's not like Paul's going to come back. They had things they said about him, like he's, he's bold when he's away, but he's timid and weak when he's, you know, when he's here. They didn't think they'd have to face him man to man. But Paul goes on in verse 19 to surprise them with these words, but I will come to you soon. If the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. Calling them out. So fourthly, I would suggest we see here a father's jealousy. Fourth and finally, this is a father's jealousy. He's turning his attention back to, in these verses, to the wolves, those who would spiritually injure his beloved children. And so jealousy in this sense, there's different meanings of that word, you know. We usually only use it in one way, which is kind of similar to envy, wanting something that 
somebody else has. But jealousy also means this. It means fiercely protective. That's jealous. Or fiercely vigilant. Right? It's the middle of the night and his eyes are open and, and he's watching and he's vigilant, making sure that the beloved are protected. That's what jealousy is. It is being fiercely protective, fiercely vigilant. It means I will protect my beloved no matter what. I will do everything possible to protect the beloved. And pastors should think about that and think that way about their churches and the people they've been given responsibility over and have great affection for and admonish. And fathers should feel that way about their wives and their children. To be fiercely protective. Paul knew, of course, it was ultimately up to God, which is why he said, if the Lord wills. But his plan is to return to Corinth. And when he does, here's what he plans to do with the some who are arrogant. He said, I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power, verse 20, for the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. The kingdom of God, he says, or the, the reign of Christ, the kingdom of God does not consist in talk. It's not just about talk and words. It is about talk. It is about words. But it does not consist merely in talk, but in power. We know this about the Corinthians, specifically this group. They love to talk. That's been made clear already in the first few chapters. They loved to talk, and they loved good talkers. It was why many of them preferred Apollos' ministry over Paul's, remember? They didn't think Paul was a good enough talker, not a good enough speaker, not a good enough preacher. He wasn't eloquent enough like Apollos was. But Paul's point throughout his letter so far has been that eloquence of speech does not matter. Power does. That's what matters. A preacher can be eloquent and powerless, which is a waste. And a preacher can be simple and full of power. It's a matter of whether or not the man preaches truth and is submitted to and helped by the Holy Spirit. That's the point that Paul has been making clear. It's not merely about what you say. It's about whether or not there is power in what you say. Whether or not it is the gospel. Whether or not it is true. Whether or not the Holy Spirit is behind it. I've heard very eloquent preachers, and so you have too, very eloquent preachers who are some of the most gifted and talented speakers I've ever heard. And what they say is awful. And there's no power in it. And the opposite is true. I've heard those who are not polished, who are not eloquent speakers, and there's power in what they say. Because the kingdom of God exists not in talk, but in power. So where the Holy Spirit is, where the Holy Spirit is moving, where the Holy Spirit is active, He can take Paul. He can take what others hear as foolish words. He can, hear a, he can take a lack of eloquence, and in it is the power of God for the salvation of those who believe. And now finally, Paul closes with this question before moving on to the next problem in Corinth, which we'll see in chapter 5. Verse 21, so what do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? That's a great question. It says, ball's in your court. I'm, I'm, I'm ready. And I'll do whatever it takes. And I will bring whatever is needed. And if this problem can be worked out with me coming and being tender and gentle, he says, I'm game for that. 
I'm ready and willing to do that. But if I need to open a can, he says, I'm ready to do that too. I can go either way. So he's talking to those, right, who feel the shame, who are taking his admonishment. He wants to come with a spirit of love and with gentleness. But then there are those who are arrogant. So he acknowledges that he might need to come with the rod. So in conclusion, to summarize, in these verses, Paul presents himself as a spiritual father to the Corinthians. In Paul, we see a father's affection, a father's admonition, a father's example, and a father's jealousy. This obviously applies to earthly fathers. This applies to earthly fathers, doesn't it? Those of you in this room who are fathers, do you have a father's affection for your children? Do they know it? You admonish your children. Do you set an example for your children? Are you jealous for your children? Not only that, fathers, are you jealous to be your children's, not only their earthly father, but their spiritual father? Are you jealous for that? Do you leave the teaching of the gospel to your kids up to someone else? A school teacher? a youth pastor, an evangelistic friend? Or do you take the responsibility to be a spiritual father to your child? Is that what you want most as a father? To be one who shares the gospel with your kids and have the Holy Spirit move in them to believe. So there's application for earthly fathers. This applies to pastors, of course. And leaders and teachers, consider yourself a father to those who follow you. Consider again the affection, the admonition, the example, and the jealousy. And this applies to all of us. In fact, this is most important. This applies to all of us as beloved children of God. That is the best application here. After all, Paul is he's, he's not writing this in this way to reach earthly fathers or pastors. He's writing it this way to reach who? The beloved. So there's a spiritual father who wants those whom he loves to know how much he loves them and to listen to him and to follow his example. So as Christians, you are at the very least the beloved of God. You are the beloved of God, and you are most likely, if you're committed to a church that preaches the gospel, you are also the beloved of someone like Paul. Those of you who are members of this church, you have my affection, unlike anyone else in any other church. As you know, I have a reserved affection for my wife and for my children. And you're next on that list. I have great affection for you. I love you. I, I'm thinking about you and what you're going through and what's happening all the time. It can be difficult to turn it off can leave me distracted at times. My wife could attest to that, sadly. And so I'm willing and ready to say hard words to you and have said hard words to some of you or to say hard words from this pulpit. In many ways, I know that my life is not a perfect example, but I hope that you can see the power of the gospel in my life and to know that I am jealous and protective over you. There are other pastors in this church who feel the same way about you and you should be able to look to in the same way. And I wouldn't presume that you don't even have other leaders or others that you look to, maybe who brought you to faith as spiritual fathers. You are the beloved of others. So listen to their admonishments and follow their examples. It is God's way of growing you in Christ. 
Every Sunday following every sermon, we respond by taking communion together. This morning will be no different. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 says, For I have received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's what we're doing. We're proclaiming and we're remembering the Lord's sacrificial death today. If you're visiting, you are invited to take communion with us. If you are a baptized believer, if you have placed your faith in Christ, you have turned from sin and trusted only on Jesus for salvation, and if you are a part of a local church, whether it's this or another church that faithfully preaches the gospel, those conditions are met. You are welcome to take communion with us today. We'll have leaders up front who'd like to serve you. If you would empty into the center aisle and come forward, give you bread and juice and then return to your seat from the outer aisle and wait and we'll take the bread and the juice together as a family. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, in response to your word now, we're turning our attention to Jesus and specifically to his work on the cross in our place. May you be glorified now as we remember and proclaim his sacrifice in our place so that we could be reconciled to you. In his name we pray. Amen.